This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Uh, I'm Roger. That's Rob. I'm the Tragically Hip fan. Rob likes the, the hippity hop music. So he not, <laughs> does not care for the band, the Tragically Hip. Wait, that sounds like someone. <laughs> Jello. <laughs> Jello put it up. Uh, so, so anyway, but, but here's, the, here's the trick, though, with all of this, is that you're listening to, I think, Rob, I think I'm describing you as well, but two guys who uh, are laissez-faire capitalist, uh, you know, letterbuck market kind of guys not price controllers. And I think that's effectively what we are asking for here, that there be some sort of legislation in place that says you cannot sell a product for a price other than the price that is ascribed to it, which is to say that if there is a scarcity, that does not mean that the price can change or well, an abundance. Yeah. Right? It's like at, at Christmas. Uh, and I remember being in, uh, in a store Christmas, and there, even just in the time I was in there near the counter, people were coming in. Do you have any PS4s? Do you have any PS4s? Nope, sorry, we're sold out, we're sold out, sold out. Guarantee you could go online and you could find a PS4. Now you're going to pay more than what you would have paid for in the store. The question is, or I guess the dilemma for you is, is not being able to get one. To, to give as a gift uh, or having one in your hands and paying a little bit more for one. So the reality is in a situation like this, this tragically hip concert, which is sold out very quickly, you've got the option of not going or paying a little bit more to go. And I think for a lot of fans, the option of still being able to go is, is an attractive one. Let's get Alan Cross in on this conversation. Alan, it's awesome to have you back on the show. How are you? I'm glad to be here, although, man, people are mad. Well, they really yeah, are. They are. I mean, people are emotional about this whole situation, obviously. Well, they are, and it's, it is a very emotional. It is unusual, this situation. I mean, I was talking to a number of people, and we were trying to think of a similar situation where we have a band going on tour uh, who has let everybody know that their front man is dying. Uh, and this is your last opportunity to see a beloved group that's been around for 30 years. And uh, it's your chance to say goodbye. People are saying that, that um, scalpers and ticket resellers are getting wealthy off the tragedy of the band. They're profiting on misery, basically. But this is really the exact same climate that would be created if the Tragically Hip just said, hey, we're going to do one more tour, then we're breaking up, and we will never play again, and we mean it. Yeah, pretty much. This is the same thing that we see with every big demand concert tour that comes through the country. Uh, it is a supply and demand situation. Like you were mentioning off the top, if there is big demand and short supply, well, then the price goes up. If there's no demand, then the price goes down. You take the words concert ticket and um, change them up with uh, company share, and basically that's the stock market. Uh, uh, yeah, precisely. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. Now, I think for a lot of people, and we were hearing from people, although someone sent us a text at 10.06 and said they were able to get tickets. But I, I've been seeing people saying, you know, I was there. I was on Ticketmaster right at 10 o'clock, and they're telling me it's it's sold out. There's the perception that it's rigged, that, that somehow there are some people who have a backdoor to all of this, and they're only doing it so they can resell them. Well, this is true. People do have a backdoor. Uh, if you looked at the Globe and Mail this morning, there's a great story in the folio section that talks about uh, tragically hit tickets and how there are these, these people with uh, these ticket-buying bots, uh, computer programs that can engage in hundreds of transactions per second. 
And with these programs and high-speed modems and a little bit of computer know-how, they know how to get to the tickets before human beings do. Uh, they scoop up a 1,000 or 2,000 tickets or whatever it is, and then they immediately uh, enlist agents like StubHub or Tickets Now or somebody else to sell the tickets on their behalf. So, yeah, it is rigged, and it's rigged on, on behalf of the people who have access to this technology. Okay. Um I, I still have a hard time. I mean, I, I guess that does kind of uh, uh, make the playing field a little bit less uh, less level. But, but is that Ticketmaster's fault? Though? Well, yeah. I mean, that that is kind of the question. Is there is there a workaround for uh, the bands if they if they want to try to avoid this? Can they have they found a way to to get away from that issue? Well, they haven't, and they're trying allegedly. I mean, we see things like CAPTCHA uh, security uh, measures. We see, you know, identify which of these three pictures has ice cream in it, you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, this sort of stuff is, is uh, the scalpers figure ways around them. Uh, I, I don't know how it works exactly. I do know that you can get one of these programs for as little as $1,000. And I've seen some weird things happen. There was somebody I know who was online Monday and had two tickets for the Kingston show in her cart on the Ticketmaster site. As she was about to click purchase, all of a sudden her computer was redirected and her screen was filled with a gibberish of Chinese characters. When she got back into Ticketmaster and went back to her cart, her tickets were gone. Wow. So a lot of these things, well, don't know how they work, but man, that sounds nefarious. Yeah, no kidding, it does. I mean, Prince used to do this thing, Alan, where he would uh, uh, like announce his concert and then play it like three days later or something like that. Was he basically just trying to, to break the, the, that scalping infrastructure and make it uh, uh, harder for these guys to find the opportunity to resell? Yeah, everybody has got their own schemes, their own theories about how to break scalping, uh, break the scalpers back. But it's it's <laughs> they just. Can't can't do it. I mean, there's a there's a very big deal right now in the UK. They call this ticket touting, and when Adele went on tour, the ticket touting was was incredible, as you might guess. And they're trying to figure out a way to prevent this gouging. Now, I think we have to make the distinction between charging for the service of being able to get into a show, a theater event, a sporting event, whatever it is, for a markup price. Right. Uh, but I mean, you know, when does the markup become gouging and who makes that decision? It's, it's really hard. Uh, this system that we've got set up is working exactly the way the system is designed to work. Supply and demand is no different than Uber surge pricing. It's no different than what airlines do with seats on flights uh, on certain times of the year. It's all about supply, demand and supply management. Uh, we and you're right. It's price controls. How how do we put price controls on something like this, which is basically a free market transaction? Right. And there's lots of things. You know, you can make a lot of moral arguments, and these are very valid moral arguments. Uh, like for example, tickets should go to the fans. I mean, this is an opportunity to say goodbye, to celebrate, to say thank you to this band. How dare that these tickets go to an elite crowd who can't afford to spend $1,200 on a ticket. That's not right. I mean, I've seen the band a thousand times since 1986. I should be able to go. Well, yeah, you should. And But the price of being able to go to this farewell 
is twelve hundred dollars. Well, now what? I mean, one of the things I've heard, and I don't know if it, if it's true that you need to to show the credit card at the door that was used to to purchase the tickets. Uh, I don't I don't know how that's enforced, but I mean, some people are saying, well, let's go back to how it was, where you go down and you stand and you line up for those tickets, uh, or sell them at the door. These kinds of things. I mean, that's. I, I don't think we're going to turn back the clock on how we sell tickets in this well, day and age. even that didn't work. Um, for example, I used to line up for tickets as a kid, and there would be this scalper guy who would find a bunch of homeless people, put them in line overnight, give them all the money they need to buy the maximum number of tickets they could each, and then in the morning they would just turn the tickets over to him, and then we would see him outside the show scalping tickets for a buffet value. Yeah. So I, I, don't know, I don't know how you get around this. Yeah, no, that, that's the problem with it. And the the question about, you know, going turning back the clock and, and, and standing in line, I mean, this is kind of the deal that we brokered, right? The good thing here is is that you have the luxury and convenience of getting tickets from wherever you are in the world now that we've got the web. Uh, but in exchange for that, I mean, you've got to realize that there's some other people with uh, profiteering intent uh, that can have better access to the market now. Well, that's what makes this one so distasteful is because there is a, a an obvious profiteering angle to it. I mean, the man's dying. You've got to see him one more time. If you want to pay, if you want to see him die before he dies, then you got to pay. But that's kind and of that's every it. Rolling Stones concert, though, too, isn't it? Well, it could be. Like, not I to be guess. crass, but... Not to be crass, but, I mean, the band was at least up front with the fact that their front man has, has incurable brain cancer. Right. So this is definitely got a best-before date, you know? Yeah. Well... Here's the thing, right? We, we, as you say, we're talking about supply and demand. The demand is is through the roof, right? There, there's no tempering that demand. But, you know, like in Toronto, I mean, in, instead of doing three shows at Air Canada Centre, if they did five shows at, at the, you know, the Sky Dome or whatever we're calling it these days, uh, that would greatly increase the supply. And, and that would go a long way, I think, in, in mitigating some of this. But, I, you know, there's only so much the band can do, I realize. Uh, there is. Uh, I would imagine, <laughs> excuse me, that um, the band is is horrified at this because if if there has ever been a band that has taken care of its fans and realized the value of their fans, it's these guys. So they have to be very upset with the way things are going and the way things are being portrayed in the media. But you know, it's not their fault. They signed a deal with the promoter. They agreed to the terms of of the tour. And uh, once tickets go on sale, things take on a life of their own. There's really not much you can do about it. The, another moral issue that you might want to bring up with this is the fact that the scalpers are trading on the arts, the heritage, the fan base, the music of the band in that markup. And the band or the promoter don't get any of that. And that's kind of wrong because if you're making, if you're profiting off me and my music and everything that's near and dear to me, shouldn't I get a cut of that? Well, theoretically, yes, you should, but in this particular case, you don't. Well, maybe the the band should be selling the tickets for a lot more than they are. Well, then the argument is that uh, we're just pricing our fans out of we would like we are pricing our fans out of our shows. We don't want that responsibility. Yeah, they they can have a cleansed conscience about it because one hundred and sixty dollars is not an exorbitant amount of money to ask for a farewell tour. I remember the Eagles when they did that Hell Freezes Over tour and they set the tickets at like two hundred ninety nine bucks or something like that. Uh, there were a lot of people belly aching about uh, how the Eagles are just trying to get rich off their fans. Yeah, but why have we why have we decided that 160 is a fair price? Just because the band decides what the price is doesn't automatically make it fair. Because they they could why not sell it for eighty dollars? What's your or take? Forty dollars? Actually, they started at like fifty nine, I think, uh, and went up to 160. But what's your take on that, Alan? 
tickets uh, ticket pricing is a tricky thing because what you have to do is determine exactly what your costs are. Uh, you have to determine exactly how much money that you can safely expect to make. You have to negotiate with a promoter to, and the agencies and to make sure that everybody gets uh, a fair cut of the whole thing. Um, it's, it's, it's an art and science when it comes to setting the price for concert tickets. And you, you, people get it wrong all the time. Um, I mean, uh, the original prices in Toronto, I don't know where, where they were, what they were like anywhere else, were 160 to $166. And that's pretty much in line with, with a lot of ticket prices that we see these days. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not cheap. I mean, a family of four, if you were going to go, I mean, it's still you know 500 bucks after the service charges and everything is put in. But, I mean, that's what you pay for a hockey game. That's what you pay for, you know, good seats at a baseball game. And it's not like you can go back and see uh, another hockey game next week. So it, it's it's a reasonably fair price, especially in the era where nobody is making money out for, from selling music. All the money is being made. All the revenue is coming from playing live. And, you know, I don't think anybody was really complaining about the 116 to $166. I think everybody's complaining when it's $10,000. And the money is going to some faceless scumball in a strip mall with 600 modems that are chugging 24-7, scooping up tickets that were supposed to be meant for the fans. Right. Hey, Alan, you know, this cloud will blow over. We'll get over this, you know, the ticket uh, fiasco on this one, and eventually it'll be about the band again. So do you mind if we take a pause right here, play some commercials, we come back, and we can kind of uh, focus on what's most important here, which is the, the, the men and their music? Let's do that. All right, cool. Alan Cross is uh, our guest. You know him. He's a legendary broadcaster and music uh, historian, musicologist, if you will, in this country. We're going to take a pause. Be right back on Kincaid and Breckenridge News Talk 770. Kincaid and Breckenridge back with Alan Cross, uh, broadcaster, music writer, and historian, uh, talking about the Tragically Hip. And, you know, as you say, Alan, to get away from this ticket controversy to talk about the band, but, I mean, the two are linked, right? Because there is such an appreciation for this band, and that, that's really what's, what's manifesting here. Yeah, so let's get away from the ticket controversy, which, in, re- in retrospect, we should have seen coming, given the circumstances. Oh, yeah, so sure. let's yeah. just, just, just we'll move on beyond that. Here's a group that's been around since uh, the middle 80s. Uh, they have been embraced by people coast to coast. They're one of the few bands that can get away with being Canadian and name-checking Canadian things and Canadian people and Canadian places without sounding cheesy about it. They did not manage to break through into the United States, for which Canadians look at the Americans go, why, what's wrong with you? Okay, fine. We'll, we'll accept them and, and keep them as our own. And, uh, you know, group has been involved in, in, in various uh, charitable and environmental causes like uh, Water Keepers, one of Gord Downey's big things here in Ontario. Uh, so they are, are tremendously, you know, they're identified with, with Canada. I saw an uh, article in the BBC uh, earlier this year, yeah. earlier this week, and That's they great. called the hit the, the most Canadian band in the world. And it's really hard to argue with that um, because of, you know, all the stuff that they that they embody about Canada. So, yeah, this is, a, this is a, 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 a sad passing. I mean, a lot of people haven't, you know, have always known the Tragically Hip to be around. Uh, they have seen them dozens of times. Uh, they've bought every record from the beginning, continue to follow the band. Everything that they do is an event. Mm-hmm. And now they're going to be passing from our experience because they're, 
you know, coming to a, a, a sad sort of end. Now, what's going to be interesting about this, these shows is what's the vibe going to be in the buildings when they play? You know, there's going to be the, you know, the emotion that's coming off the stage from the band, and there'll be the emotion that's coming off the audience for the band, and it's going to meet in the middle. So it's going to be, I think this could be the most intense concert tour that we'll see in our lifetimes, frankly. Yeah. Well, especially that Kingston show, right? Uh, are, you well, going, that, are you going to go to that, by the way? You're, you're probably uh, the only person in Canada that I could reasonably guarantee will be in attendance. I Besides the band themselves. <laughs> listen, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I wish, I hope, I doubt it, but I would imagine that, I mean, we've, we've heard stories about the CBC saying that they're going to broadcast this one live. I was just going to ask uh, you about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would be very surprised if discussions like these hadn't been taking place weeks, if not months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody knew that Gord was was ill uh, after after Christmas. So, um, and if the tour and the album and everything else was being planned, uh, they, they've had these conversations. If and somebody, please tell me that they're documenting this because it's not only is it a great story, it's a far too important part of Canadian musical history, Canadian history period, yeah. not to document it properly. So I hope they have you know the video cameras running and the documentarians and everything working for this because it's just we, we got to have it. Yeah, that's such an interesting point you make about mm-hmm. about Canadian history, too, because, I mean, we do have to have this. We'd have to be aware of this all the time, but, I mean, the, that would just be so apropos because the, the Tragically Hip have made so many Canadians aware of a history that we might have otherwise been unaware of, or history, even current events. Like, I wonder if more people know about David Milgard because of the song Wheat Kings. Well, there's that, and Bill Barilko, and Hugh McLennan, and where's Bob Cajun, and there's so many other things. You know, and, the, and and the fact that the hip is 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 tied with hockey, and they they have all these hockey references in their song, and that Gord uh, Gord Downey is the godson of Harry Sinden of the Boston Bruins. I mean, it's it's uh, how how much more Canadian do you want to get? Yeah. Hey, by the way, and and I remember you know after Prince died, you know a bunch of his songs were all of a sudden charting again because people were buying the music. Um, I, we're seeing people buy the tickets, clearly, Alan, but have you been noticing, have, have uh, people been buying their, their songs, have their sales shot up? Yeah, exponential increases in sales. Um, last week, or actually this week, if you looked at the charts, I think it was at number six, the Hips, Your Favorites um, CD was at, uh, was, was, yeah, it was number six on the charts this week. Uh, the week before we got the announcement, the Tragically Hip sold a grand total of 340 albums across the country. Uh, the following week after the announcement and the announcement of the tour, they, they um, sold 5,000. They went from four 400,000 streams in a week to over 2 million. So, yeah, there is a big uptick in, in, in hip interest as people are bulking up on their library, rediscovering the band in light of all these announcements. Yeah, I like it when people buy the greatest hits. That's what you're talking about when you mentioned your favorites. But uh, yeah. what's what's the quintessential hip album in your mind? Me fully completely. Um, yeah, I, I think that's I think the answer too. It's 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 the it's, it's the peak of their powers. Wow, they peaked early then. <laughs> well, that was ninety two. Yeah, and you know that had hit after hit after hit, and you know it's a solid record from front to back. I did the liner notes for the special um, box set that came out last year, so I spent an awful lot of time with that record. And the deeper you go, the re- the better the album becomes yeah. you know and, and this is kind of at the the heart of their popularity and i think maybe some canadians are almost in a way proud that they didn't succeed in the u.s but certainly those albums in the early 90s there, there was a push from the record label 
in the United States. So why, why do you think they, they well, didn't there, resonate? Well, wasn't, there wasn't a push. So here's the problem. They had one, one deal for Canada, and then they signed another couple of deals in the U.S., and both those deals went badly. And it had nothing to do with the ban. It had to do with the way with label politics and everything else. So um, there's, it, it was, it's just the, 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 the vicious game that's rock and roll. And uh, unfortunately, they, they never got the chances that they needed or never were able to capitalize on those chances. And we shouldn't fixate on the fact that they never made it in the U.S. because, you know, damn it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and that it doesn't matter at all. Uh, and interestingly, I think that, that their live album, Live Between Us, was uh, recorded in, in uh, Michigan, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah. With the Rio Statics. I should go put that one yeah. back in again. There's some good stuff on there. Hey, Alan, uh, thanks a lot for this conversation. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. And I hope uh, everybody who wants tickets can somehow get them. Um, just don't sell an internal organ for one. <laughs> okay. Good advice. Thank yeah, you. No kidding. Yeah. Alan, appreciate it. But, um, you know, I wonder if how much would a dire fan, dire fan be willing to pay? Putting aside how ethical this is or whatever we think of scalpers. What would you pay? What are you willing to pay? Because some people are going to pay these exorbitant prices. Right, yeah. Because it just means so much to them to go. But I just, uh, and I wonder how high that'll go. I don't, I don't think, I'd be shocked. I don't think anyone's going to pay $10,000 a ticket. Yeah. I really don't. I don't know. I mean, look, I really want to see Dennis Miller do stand-up comedy before uh, he shuffles off. And I, not, he's okay, isn't he? Well, he's fine, yeah. I mean, I'd love to see Muhammad Ali fight. He's not doing so well these days. He's in the hospital. But, you know, here's my point about Dennis Miller and why I bring it up is because I wanted to see George Carlin and never did. And I'm, I'm tired of regretting. I never saw Prince. I'm tired of regretting this stuff. And I'm going to go see... Dennis Miller at some point in time, but I have to travel to get there. So if I pay 500 bucks for the flight and then I pay 300 bucks for the hotels and $150 for the ticket, how is that different? All right, we're going to stand down for the 1130 News. When we come back, we're going to find out more about the eddies. Uh, this has been going on for years. It's, it's kind of gone in a different direction now, but it's all for a great cause. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, Big Rock Beer because uh, this is theirs. This is their baby. And uh, what, what a thing it's uh, grown into. So we'll get to that following the 1130 News. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Backstrom to Bucks, Kessel near Ufta. Back will give Benino, 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 that's it. Uh, happy lunch, friends and neighbors. Oh, that is awesome. that is the best hockey goal call uh, that I've heard in ages and ages. And the first time I, that is, yeah, that's the first one. That's not the playoff one. That uh, well, yeah, that was from the Washington series, right? Uh, Pittsburgh, me, Washington yeah. in the second round, and then just the other night in Game One at the Stanley Cup Final, who gets the winning goal, but Nick Benino, right? The Pittsburgh Penguins. Who's well, by name? the way, what a steal! Uh, Pittsburgh had traded. Uh, what's his name? Sutter to Vancouver, straight up for Benino. Sutter makes over four million. Benino earns like one point nine million. Pittsburgh won that trade, hands down. I think that, and I'm not entirely sure, but this is the kind of goal call that could that could stick. So while while Henry Ryan Singh is saying Benino's name repeatedly, that could just kind of become like a, a like the common parlance, the lingua franca for um, he shoots, he scores. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? You might just like see uh, you'd be at your kid's game and uh, your son puts it in the net and you go, hey, Benino, Benino, Benino. Yeah, you should. And because there's not a lot of names in the NHL that work as well. Like, you know, Crosby, Crosby, Crosby. No. Nah. Latang, Latang, Latang. No, nah, it just it doesn't work. Well, I don't know. Actually, 
we should uh, we should leave that in the capable hands of our next guest here. Hunter Ryan Singh joins us. Uh, Hunter Ryan calls the games for Hockey Night in Punjabi. You watch it on uh, uh, on Omni. Hunter Ryan, thanks for being with us today. By the way, my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Are we wrong? By the way, is this exclusively uh, Benino that that has this kind of magic, or do you think you could spin anybody's name into a brilliant <laughs> gold call? A gold well, call. well, you know what? You have to score some big goals, and Benino has done just that. These playoffs, um, the the goal call you played. You know, he tied the game there, and then he he had the uh, an overtime winner in that same series against the Capitals, and then here he scores the game-winning goal in Game One of the Stanley Cup Finals. So, uh, you know, if you're able to score big, big goals, something special might happen. But you're right, Benino, the name is uh, is fun to say like that. And I, when I when it when it all happened, I had no idea at all that it would go viral or, you know, the goal call would receive this much attention, but I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. <laughs> well, it's my email indicator now. So when I get an email on my office computer, <laughs> that's what I hear. But I've also got it in my mind now, by the way, that if Benino like just tucks in an empty netter to extend their lead to like six, three or something, you're just going to basically say, uh, <clears throat> Benino, Benino, Benino. But you didn't, you held <laughs> off, you held off. You did it that first time. And then I think people were expecting you to do it every time. It just so happened that you had just the perfect opportunity to do it when in game one of the, the Stanley Cup final. Well, we had requests from all over North America to repeat the call. And you're right. I was thinking about it and I was like, well, if he scores and it's one nothing in the first period, it doesn't warrant it. It has to be a big moment. But lo and behold, he scores the game winner right away in game one. And yeah, it's just one of those things. I mean, the backstory behind it too in, in that Capitals um, Penguin series. I in my g- pregame prep, I had made an error um, in my own notes where I had written Benino down for left wing, center, and right wing. And the, my, my producer uh, Nathan Sacon, he's uh, counting me down, and we're literally seconds before going live on the air. And I looked at my notes and I pointed out to my analysts where we were all chuckling to each other quietly, like, "Oh, look, it says Benino, Benino, Benino." And then I guess that was in my head when he scored that big goal, and I, you know, the adrenaline's pumping and. And we have a very enthusiastic style of uh, calling the game anyhow. So I just went with it. And, um, yeah, I guess people loved it, which is great. Well, even Nick Benino loved it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. He's got, he asked his wife's family to have it as a, uh, as their ringtone so that they all knew when, uh, so that they all know when the Beninos are calling. So it's wonderful. Cause I saw an interview with you, uh, the, the Penguins, uh, in-house uh, broadcast. I think it was, uh, they, they'd put it up on their f- Facebook page, but you've been getting a lot of that from all over North America. Yeah, it, it has really, um, you know, especially I think in the United States, um, a lot of people, a lot of hockey fans there weren't probably aware of, of our broadcast. I think in Canada, most um, hockey fans and viewers are aware because we've been around now for a while. Um, but uh, yeah, it's something new for, for the United States hockey fans in the United States media. So we've definitely been um, getting a lot of um, interest, which, is, which has been fabulous. Yeah, you know, let's talk about kind of the the birth of of Hockey Night in Punjabi because um, I mean, I want to know if, was this your idea? Is this something that, that you had to pitch and sell, or did or did you apply for a job? Well, this is uh, you know it's CBC's initiative, and they actually way back when tried Cantonese and Mandarin, and um, Mark Crawford was just coming off being the Canucks coach. And he was working with CBC at the time. And when they were discussing which languages to try for some multicultural and diverse initiatives, um, he was even suggesting that, you know, whenever he went to the 
uh, grocery store in the lower mainland of BC or pumped gas. Um, it was always Punjabi grandmothers and grandfathers coming up recognizing him. And, and when he would, you know, drive around Surrey, he would see Punjabi kids playing street hockey everywhere. So, you know, it, CBC uh, made this first initiative just a pilot project. And um, the ratings and the, uh, the, uh, the reaction from the community was such that they had no choice but to keep it going. And, and now it's the ninth season. So I was... I had worked for TSN for a bit, but I was also then after that working for CBC, and uh, my name was uh, brought up. I, I knew Kelly Rudy as well in Cal- because he lives in Calgary, and he, he would come into the CBC building, and I was a reporter there. And um, through that, it uh, that's how I, I tried out for it, got the gig. I've been fortunate to be a part of it ever since the beginning. This is now the ninth season and uh, but you know the last couple of years our production quality has really increased with it being on omni and 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 so because of that uh, we have a full uh, pre-game show post-game show and we're able to do a lot more we have a beautiful set and we have a dedicated social media person all of these things have really helped in, in increasing our exposure to hockey fans everywhere yeah everywhere worldwide right that's right <laughs> and it's yeah, interesting right. No, so go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, yeah, it's amazing when you're when you're making you know front page news over in India too, which is, uh, I mean, it's just icing on the cake. We're exposing the game to all sorts of um, you know different markets. Because this is something you always wanted to do. I understand it was kind of your dream to be like a hockey play by play guy. Definitely. I mean, I I was born in Wetaskiwin. I'm a through and through Albertan. After um, that, all of my grade school was in Brooks, Alberta. And, uh, you know, so I was born, I was growing up in the 80s when the Flames and Oilers, the Battle of Alberta, actually in the heyday of that. And um, so, you know, you're you're immersed in Canadian culture, which is uh, the big part of that is hockey. Um, but in growing up in Brooks, there wasn't really, uh, there weren't any other visible minorities around. And I quickly learned that, you know, I was able to make friends or uh, also make my classmates forget how I how I looked different when I talked about hockey. And I kind of became the hockey guy. And my parents and my family tell me that, yeah, when I was very, very young, this is what I said I wanted to do. And I, I used to, I was just obsessed. I was that kid in class who was writing from zero to 99 and I would try to memorize as many hockey jersey numbers <laughs> or I, instead of doing my assignments I would write out uh, each team's name and try to think of as many players as I could so I, I had an obsessive compulsive disorder with <laughs> hockey uh, but it turned out. <laughs> well and were you always so fluently bilingual like right 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 as soon as you could talk were you always speaking both languages? Yeah, Punjabi and English yeah. were right away because my parents were teachers too, but they also, I'm very thankful that they kind of maintained our heritage within within our family and taught us values from both cultures. So it, it really worked out well. Very grateful for that. Um, do, do you find, because uh, you're, you're kind of a, a conduit then for for access as far as uh, members of the Punjabi community go and then like NHL players. And, and you talked about Mark Crawford and being in, in um, uh, Vancouver. I mean, I lived in Vancouver when Crawford uh, was the coach there. And, like, I'd go to Canucks games, and, man, that was a mosaic, that place. Like, there was there was a tremendous amount of cultural diversity in, in the stands. Have, have, do, you, do you find that people are kind of, like, reaching out uh, to you to kind of get questions to the players or to bring the broadcast to them in different ways? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's a there's a lot of things going on. You're absolutely right. Um, there, especially in you know in in Vancouver or also Toronto, there's a lot of diversity at the arenas. But we also see it in Calgary for sure. I mean, the Flames. Uh, um, I I have I do some work for them. Flames TV Punjabi during during the regular season, and uh, we we know too that there's a lot of uh, different diverse cultural groups attending the game and I think our show has a lot to do with that we we run into a lot of people who say that you know they weren't hockey fans before uh, watching our show but there's another element to it where um, people are putting their kids into minor hockey because of our show too if you go to for example in Calgary the Don Hartman Sportsplex in the northeast there um, there's a, often I've run into parents who said that their kids wouldn't have been in minor hockey had it not been for being introduced to the sport through our show. So there's a lot of that happening. And, and of course, uh, yes, the, the community um, is very proud of what we're doing, and I, and I, and I think they've loved to, uh, how the show has grown. But they, but they also feel like it's opening doors. I mean, I get uh, one of the most rewarding things that I, I find is when I get to go talk to students. And uh, if you have, you know, uh, youngsters coming up to you and saying that, hey, we had no idea that you know you a person could look like you and get like a mainstream media job it's proving that and you know i try to tell them you don't go for your hopes and dreams we live in a country where where you can have you can fulfill those those goals that you have and those those desires and i i think um that really proves that we're kind of opening doors for the future so there's and of course yeah you always get that question oh have you have you met Sidney Crosby or (laughs) you know and that kind of stuff and it's I think people are really inspired when they when they see someone from their community um you know being able to have this type of access and that yeah no and I think it's great too the trend that you started uh, Hunter Ryan in in this uh the beards that I see on the ice <laughs> yeah, we, we've always had our playoff beard ready. Right, so I'm right. glad Thornton and Burns and uh, even Benino, they've all caught on. Uh, yeah, beautiful. but uh, I saw a picture of Patrick Marlowe today, a uh, picture of him just from after game one or game two, and a picture from earlier in the playoffs. I think he actually dyed the gray out of his beard, maybe even trimmed it a little. <laughs> that seems, seems blasphemous to me. What are you made, by the way, of the first two games uh, of the final? Um, you know what? Uh, it's very interesting how dominant uh, Pittsburgh was for for the majority of the, both of the games. I mean, it, there was a spurt um, where you know in the second period of Game One where San Jose was able to come through and tie the game, mm-hmm. but that's really it. I think Pittsburgh has done such a phenomenal jo- job defensively. They are just keeping the Sharks totally to the outside against the wall. And San Jose, you know, in game one, I gave them the benefit of the doubt because I knew there was going to be jitters. Everybody's talking about Thornton and Marlowe. They've played 18 seasons in the league. They're veterans. But when it comes to the Stanley Cup final, it doesn't matter. It's different. And um, I think, you know, there was a little bit of nervousness there. Uh, So I thought they would play a lot better in game two. But uh, you know, on the other flip side of that, Pete DeBoer, coach of the Sharks, he's right. They, they were one-goal games. It, it could have a bounce here or there, and the story could have totally changed. But but the score doesn't tell the story. The Penguins were the more dominant team. And Sidney Crosby has some sort of hunger this oh, yeah. season. Uh, it's just so different. I think when he won, when he made it to the two cup finals in a row, in uh, 08 and 09, he was a lot younger, and I think now the maturity, he knows how tough it is to get back here, and he he has some sort of hunger that 
seems like there's nothing stopping him. Yeah, and I think it's really important for him, too, to have a, a, that second cup, right? So he's not like a, a one-and-done kind of guy that he's kind of legitimized and, and kind of uh, got that place in history, right? Well, and he'll be right up there with Lemieux then in in, in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. uh, if, if he is able to get this second cup. I mean, um, it, it, his uh, legendary status will be definitely... Uh, secured if he's able to do that and I think then you know we can start the conversation of including him amongst those greats um, in, from the, from looking back at history. Yeah. I got a real nerd question for you so please indulge me but I mean we in, we in the broadcast business we kind of look up we've got some some heroes broadcast heroes who came before us Are you, do, do you look to any uh, uh, Punjabi broadcasters uh, from uh, from India or are your guys uh, all Canadian hockey guys? No, uh, that's a good question, actually. Um, so what it is, is, uh, like, obviously, I grew up listening to uh, Bob Cole, obviously yeah. legendary Hockey Night in Canada. He called so many historic moments um, for Hockey Night in Canada, but also his his commitment to, you know, living out in the Maritimes and traveling all these years to call the games and, and still at it and all that. I admire, I admire that totally. And he's able to kind of, a capture the moment the dr- the dramatic uh the stuff in the third period i i love that so i try to emulate that type of a thing but what we've done with the punjabi uh style is the community is very vibrant they're very loud um the clothes are colorful they're you know they're very into music and they're very into their food um i'm sure i'm sure you guys have tried some samosas and some yes, sir. And, <laughs> and, and uh yeah so um, I think what we've tried to do is incorporate the culture in the call. And if you if you do compare um, other Punjabi sports, there's a it's a form of wrestling called kabaddi. It's very lively the the commentary, um, but there's a lot of humor involved too. So I we've picked up a few general ideas from there. We always have had those implemented in. But you know when we refer to um, song lyrics like a popular song lyrics uh or if we talk about punjabi food like you know if a team didn't have a good period maybe they need to have a a nice cup of chai the next intermission or (laughs) you know these types of things i think people really love that we're we're kind of associating punjabi culture uh, along into the commentary and so that's kind of how we've done it it's kind of a hybrid uh, where we're yeah, all of us commentators on the show grew up listening to Canadian um, play-by-play guys and analysts, but uh, we're incorporating culture in it. So that's that's how the recipe is being made. That's wow. awesome. Well, people can follow you on Twitter at Ice Sing. I like that H N I C, which is which is fantastic. Uh, Hunter <laughs> Ryan, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. All the best. Uh, there you go. Hunter Ryan uh, Singh. Backstrom to Boss. Yes, got to hear it one more time. Yeah, he said he only had it written down three times. A bunch of bananas. <laughs> that was more than three. <laughs> right, We've got to take a break. You're back with more right after this. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays starting at 930 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.